Hello and welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name's Andy Davidson and I'm here with my co-host and fellow ranger, Carly Harrod. Hi Carly. Hi Andy. So today we're coming from the north of the county, which is a little bit out of my comfort zone seeing as I live in Southampton. I get a little bit lost when I come up here. And we're here today to find out more about the fantastic Basingstoke Canal. Now Andy, I know you're quite familiar with the canal, aren't you? Yes I am. In fact, we're not actually in Hampshire anymore, we're actually in Surrey. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I've left the county. <laughs> it's a quite an amazing sight, it's 32 miles long, winds through some beautiful countryside and actually we're going to find out quite a lot hopefully from Fiona when we have a chat with her in a minute. I've never been up here before, I've been up here for a training course and for a couple of meetings but being like right down in the south it's quite a long way to come but I'm definitely going to come up and explore it, it looks beautiful today. Hi Fiona, good to see you. The manager of the site here, aren't you? Yeah, uh, my title is Canal Manager. So I manage the Basingstoke Canal Authority. Uh, the Canal Authority is a partnership. Uh, we manage the whole of the canal uh, for both of its owners. So half of the canal is owned by Hampshire County Council and half of it is owned by Surrey County Council. And obviously that can get really complicated across different counties and different policies and procedures. So we have the Basingstoke Canal Authority that then manage on behalf of those two owners. And yeah, and we look after all of the operational day-to-day needs of the canal. It's a fantastic place. I mean, it's amazing to think. It's quite beautiful here. And uh, we're not actually far from the M3 and quite built up areas, are we? Yeah, I think that's, the, that's the, the great thing about the canal. It's that kind of green corridor and people don't realise that it's here often. But, um, you know, you follow the canal right through some of the town centres like Fleet and Woking. And when you're on the canal, even in the middle of Woking, for example, you know, you wouldn't know you're in the middle of a town centre and the same in Fleet as well. It's amazing how it just kind of sneaks through all these built up places, but giving this uh, massive, you know, green resource for all of those people. In our terms, it's probably quite an unusual site because it's someplace only a few metres wide. But how long is it? So the canal is about 52 kilometres in total, so it's actually really huge. About 30, I'm going to swap between kilometres and miles here, but it's about 32 miles of that then is navigable. So we do have a section as well that's non-navigable, which means that boats can't uh, go along it, basically. That's what navigable means. So, I mean, it's clearly not a natural um, waterway, is it? I mean, it was built. (laughs) When was it built and why was it built? So it was uh, completed back in 1794. Um, so it's been around over 200 years now, so it's been here a very long time. It was originally built as an agrarian canal, which means it was there to take agricultural products. And obviously it's called the Basingstoke Canal, so originally it actually started in Basingstoke. It doesn't go that far, unfortunately, these days. Uh, but it went from Basingstoke and was basically taking those products uh, right through down uh, to the way to the Thames through to London. So it was very important in its time. Um, unfortunately it was kind of built at the end towards the end of the canal era really um, and of course the railways came along not long after and I think the most profitable time for the canal was actually when it was helping build the railway along next to it which happens with a lot of canals and unfortunately uh, the canal over many years did fall into decline um, and kind of eventually kind of finished up around going derelict in the sort of early sort of mid part 1950s ish around that time it was actually derelict unfortunately but um, it was then the Canal Society was formed the Basingstoke Canal Society was formed um, in the 1970s um, and they basically lobbied the county councils at the time to take on the canal uh, and buy it um, and which they did so um, under the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act and they took it on board the society then spent about 20 to 30 years then basically restoring the whole of the canal which was an absolutely massive job that had to happen um, but they did that very successfully and then they handed it over 
over then to the newly formed Basingstoke Canal Authority in the early 90s. And here we are now, still going. You know, it's been restored now, but this is, it's pretty still water. There's a little bit of flow. It's not like a normal natural river is it? No not at all. The canal is very much a man-made waterway and it acts very differently to a river so I've got a great analogy for this that I can tell you which I think is really helpful for people and it's what our uh, the senior canal ranger actually told me when I started here uh, many years ago now uh, and I've always used this description since. So basically the canal is different to a river in that the canal is very much like a bathtub okay so imagine the taps um, are basically permanently on but you never know whether the water is going to come out of them or not and that's like the rain basically coming out of the sky it's always there it always could potentially fall you don't know whether it's going there or not but we have ways then of controlling the water in our bathtub so if you remember you've got that little overflow hole um, in your bath the one that usually doesn't work very well but actually you've got that little hole and it's set at a certain level and we have our weirs our fixed crest weirs along the canal so once the water in the canal reaches a certain level we call that our datum zero once it reaches zero the water will then top over our weirs and take that excess water away from the canal and into our local river systems if it rains a lot those taps are really on high and it's absolutely chucking it down and we find that the weirs are not taking it off quicker enough basically it's only a small hole there's only so much much meterage of weir and the bath starts to fill up quicker than it's going out what we can do is open sluices now the sluices in the bathtub are like your plug basically in the bottom so you can open and close that plug as much as you want to try and let water out now you could get to a state where it's raining for so long and so heavy that even with the weir the overflow running and the bath plug out that the water in that bath is still coming up so we have a cunning way of dealing with that. We actually look at the weather forecast. So before it rains, we're thinking about this way ahead. So before it rains, we say, well, what, how long is it going to rain for? What's the kind of what, uh, level of waterfall are we looking at? And if it's looking that it's going to be prolonged, very heavy rain, what we'll actually do is lower the water level in the canal beforehand. And that's the beauty of a canal. Um, with a river, you don't have that amount of control. Basically, the river flows. If it rains, it comes up and it floods if it gets too much and you don't have that control over it. With the canal, actually you do. We lower levels down quite low, so we'll open our sluices way before it rains, let the water level drop down, so once it then starts to rain, we have a massive amount of availability in the canal for that to then gradually fill back up while it's raining, until it then gets to the weir point again where it goes over. So the beauty of that is that we load our local river systems before it actually rains. So if we were to wait till it actually rains and then load them up, we're just adding to that local flooding. We won't, don't want to do that. And obviously we want to control the water level in the canal much more carefully. So by loading it in advance, by taking that water out, we're putting water into those rivers before there's a problem. That can flow away quite happily. And then we're adding all of that extra drainage capacity into the canal for that local area. And then we gradually fill back up again. There will be a point, of course, with the you know, raining for weeks where we, you know, the canal will fill back up again and we're then having to let it out of our sluices and weirs. But the majority of time we can control that quite carefully. So the majority of events we've got perfect control over that that you wouldn't have uh, next to a river. So actually, it's probably much safer to live by a canal from a flooding perspective than it is to live near a river. Yeah, so clearly there's a lot involved, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, and all of that management of that water is something we have to do every single day as well. So our canal ranger team have to go out and measure water levels along the canal every single day to keep an eye on what's happening with the fluctuating levels. We might not be raining here in Mitchett, where we're standing right at this moment, but it could be raining further upstream in the canal in Odium. We don't see that and suddenly our levels start to raise. So we need to keep a careful eye on those uh, and then careful eye, obviously, on the weather systems and what's coming in as well. And of course, 
Going opening in sluices and weirs, that's a constant. There's lots of them along the canal. We've got to be going around and managing those and upping and downing those levels appropriately. And of course, all of our weirs very get quickly get clogged up with leaves, particularly in the autumn time. Leaves and twigs that are falling naturally into the canal will clog them up. Uh, you know, within half an hour, the whole thing can reduce almost to half the capacity of the water going over it just because of the leaf matter. So we're constantly going around the canal, obviously 32 miles navigable canal here. That's a lot of driving and a lot of time for our team to be able to go and clear those and keep them clear. So um, actually, when there's heavy rain, uh, lots of wind blowing leaves down and trees, there's a, a lot happening here on the canal to keep it all safe for everybody. And that's... Um because clearly it's a canal that's there for the boats and that's yeah. pretty much all about keeping the right level for the boats to go through, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we have that sort of datum zero that I mentioned earlier. That's the ideal level for the canal where we're not going to overtop the canal, but we've got enough water for boats to pass through. Um, the shape of the canal is actually a bit like a saucer is a good way to kind of imagine it. So you're looking at about sort of three to four uh, foot depth in the middle of the canal but shallowing off very much at the sides so if we drop too much in water level actually the sides very quickly become very very shallow and you only have that narrow bit down the middle so yeah we want to keep our water levels as close to zero as we possibly can through the year unfortunately the canal here the Basingtoke has traditionally always suffered from low water levels and I think right back in the in the late 1700s soon after the canal had opened it did close one summer there because they didn't have enough water to feed it and that's something we still suffer from today and often means that there's um, a few weeks or a month in the summer where we're not able to have boats coming on and off and visiting the canal which is a real shame. Our main water source actually comes from the springs under the Greywall Tunnel at the top end of the canal and that's where most of our water comes from. We have a couple of inlet feeders as well coming into the canal, but we rely very much on those. Um, other canals often uh, are quite near a river system where they can take water off rivers as well, or they have big summit pounds where they have big storages of water. Unfortunately, um, they took a lot of shortcuts when they made the Basingstoke Canal, um, and they didn't build those kind of things into it. So once uh, the spring levels, the underground aquifers, reduce down, then we get a lot less water coming in, and our levels will quickly drop um, drop down and particularly in the height of summer where it's hot you've got a lot of evaporation um, the trees the, the, the canal is beautiful because of its tree line nature but all of those trees are sucking water out of the ground out of the canal as well and our water levels can drop very very rapidly over you know a matter of very hot days in the summertime so uh, yeah it's it's a difficult thing unfortunately but uh, yeah we could really do with some more water so we're generally pretty happy on the canal actually when it rains particularly in the summer we're the only people uh, celebrating at that yeah. time, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so we say it was originally built to take the agricultural products and uh, things like that along, and they would have been horse-drawn barges, but clearly there's none here now. We've got a couple of it's like narrow boats up the side here, moored here. Yeah, we've got lots of nice narrow boats on the canal. Um, so we have various sort of areas for mooring along the canal, um, and we have narrow boats and cabin, smaller cabin cruisers and things that moor up here. Uh, and they have that as their sort of permanent home mooring. Um, so this is not for people to live on board their boats. It's for people to sort of store their boats and come and use them for recreation and take them up and down the canal. The great thing about the Basingstoke Canal is once you get above our, we have flights of locks on the canal, we call them flights, and that's sets of locks in a row basically that you go through to obviously move uphill very gradually, that's the whole point of locks. Once you've passed the first 28 locks on the canal, which are all down in the Surrey end of the canal, you then actually get to a massive pound, a pound is what we call a big section of water uh, between locks, 
um, you get to a really big pound and in that whole pound then you've got a good uh, 16 or more miles where you've only got then one lock actually to have to go through and it makes it really easy boating for people. Now some people love going through the locks and that's great, they can be hardcore going through those locks if they want, there's big flights that they can uh, travel through but actually if you just want some nice easy days uh, cruising up and down the canal, uh, watching the kingfishers, seeing the herons, um, uh, watching the, the damselflies and dragonflies coming and sitting on your boat as you're travelling along, then the Hampshire Pound is absolutely amazing for that and it makes it a really popular place for people to want to have their boats. Because they're definitely not speedboats, are they? These are generally a slow <laughs> pace of life, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, everything happens very slowly on the canal and even with maintenance of the canal, sometimes we need to get boats from one place to another, but it can take a day or so just to move the boat to the location to do that job. Uh, and it can make it yeah very very tricky so yeah it's a very much a slower pace of life we have a sort of speed limit on the canal uh, which is basically sort of a fast walking pace was how you would kind of describe that and you're not allowed to make a breaking wash behind you because that breaking wash can obviously go and erode the banks of the canal which we already have a lot of erosion just from the day-to-day -day use on the canal so uh, yeah we don't want them to go too fast or that causes more damage. I used to live in the area. I've actually kayaked on the canal. I probably didn't have a permit. You need a permit to do that, <gasps> don't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, the canal, because as well as I've just been talking about, we've got this big power without any locks. It makes it fantastic uh, for unpowered boats. So canoes, kayaks, uh, paddle boards are all the rage, obviously, these days. A lot of those inflatable kayaks these days are a lot better quality than they used to be, than the old uh, rubber dinghies that they had in the good old days. But actually, yeah, so it's so, so popular for, uh, for unpowered boats. So, yeah, people do need a license from us. Anybody who uses the waterway actually needs a license of some sort from us. You can't just go on and use it. But we basically, we want people to use the canal. We want people to enjoy it. We want people to get out and have, you know, that outdoor sport, the access to outdoor recreation. Uh, the canal's absolutely perfect for that. Uh, conveniently, we've just written a book, actually, a paddle sport guide to the canal, which you can get online. Um, and that basically tells you all the great places to go and park and access the canal and different kind of trips that you can do. We had a massive increase in unpowered boat use this summer, obviously, with COVID. Um, people have gone out and suddenly bought all these new canoes and kayaks because it was like one of the few things that they were allowed to do locally. So we've had a whole new load of people who've come and discovered the canal through wanting to find somewhere to go out paddling. And I think it's great. I mean, paddling is very low impact on the canal, but really huge enjoyment output, basically. Um, and all of those, for our day, just for a simple day license for the canal, is only £3 a day. For that, you know, where do you get a whole day out for £3? And if there's two of you in the boat, it's only £1.50 each it's an absolute bargain <laughs> but you know what even though it's a small amount and we've put new signage up this year all of that really does add up so we've it's really helped our finances for the canal this year to have all of those unpowered boats and all those little three pounds adding up and helping our revenue budget uh, where we desperately need money to then look after the canal long term because a canal is not a cheap thing to look after as a heritage asset there's a lot of assets along the canal a lot of features that we need to maintain in a traditional way and of course those things don't come cheaply mm. clearly i mean there's quite a lot of people on the towpaths it's used as walk it's a walking route as well isn't it of course yes yeah. so we've got the towpath um, runs right through um, even into the unnavigable bit of the canal where the boats can't go anymore the towpath runs right through there and right through to uh, well it goes right from the river away um, down in Byfleet right through um, to up Nately uh, in Hampshire and yeah it's a fantastic walking route a lot of people do it as a challenge route as well and see if they can walk it all you know in a day um, and people do it as a paddling challenge route as well and sometimes even including all of the lock portages which is uh, quite hard work to get in and out around all of those locks so it's very hard work 
But yeah, the canal is so well used. Um, cyclists, walkers, dog walkers, uh, and particularly again now during COVID, we've had an awful lot of use. Um, we had, I think we did some measurements of some uh, counters and things down in the woking part of the canal. And we found we'd actually had a 300% increase uh, in cycle use alone um, on the towpath in that area. And of course, on top of that, all of the extra pedestrians as well and the dog walkers and the runners. Unfortunately, the canal towpath is quite a narrow space. Um, and it does make it quite difficult sometimes because there's a lot of people, all different types of users, wanting to use this very narrow space. So um, certainly sort of the most popular areas can get quite busy sometimes, but there's also a lot of very rural parts of the canal where you're not going to see as many people and you can definitely have that, that quieter experience. And of course the towpath is ideal for commuting as well because the railway line that was built along it, we've actually got quite a few railway stations quite near the canal. So people will, uh, who live nearby will use it to walk or bike to the train stations to get to work and sometimes use the train station of ways of helping them walk the canal in sections as well and then traveling back again afterwards so that's pretty handy too and you've got fishing clubs here as well haven't you? there's a lot going on here yeah so again as i was talking about the different users on the towpath obviously uh, the fishermen and women who uh, use the canal obviously are on the edge of that towpath as well um, and yeah we have the basingstoke canal angling association who currently have the, the rights to the angling on the canal uh, so they're quite a big club and have access to the rights all the way along the canal so it's clearly highly valued by all the users, but it's because most of it is a special scientific interest, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things that makes um, the canal very, very special. There's not many canals um, around the country that are actually um, a site of special scientific interest. Here at the Basingstoke Canal, we were designated, we, we have basically this really unusual water chemistry. Mm. So from where it, the water comes out of the springs under the Greywell Tunnel, um, and emerges. that's basically at that end of the canal, it's very alkaline. Uh, and up there we get really clear waters where you can see the fish swimming around in there below you. Um, and it's, it travels along the distance of the canal heading through down into Surrey and down to the, towards the River Way. It gradually changes into an acidic uh, pH level. Yeah. And what it is, what makes it so special is we get all of then uh, the water-based vegetation that's associated with all of those different levels of pH, basically, as it goes along. And that's what makes it um, really, really special because you don't normally get all of that within one continuous water body. It's very, very unusual. Um, yeah, but that's obviously all to do with the soils and the, the geological types that we're passing through um, through this area. But yeah, it makes it really special. Um, <clears throat> the other reason for the designation is because of our damselflies and dragonfly population. We have a huge number of the species that you get to see within um, the UK here. Uh, you can see them along the canal uh, and it's a really great place and particularly if you're out paddling they'll often come and sit on your canoe or your kayak as you're going along particularly if you're here um, in the middle of the summer you know July August times a really great time to see them. Um, I usually like to go up through like um, through Crookham village um, and up through to sort of Barley Mow, Winchfield up there that's a really good area for seeing the dragonflies zipping around above you hunting uh, and obviously then emerging out on the reeds on the side of the canal as well. So we're talking about the, it comes out the chalk at Greywell and it's, yes. it's almost gin clear up there, isn't it? Yes. And it's, I mean, it's quite dark here. I suppose it's quite peaty from the heaths as well. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. The Surrey heaths, yeah. So mm. it's a much more obviously acidic um, down through this area. So yeah, and it's much more cloudy as a result. But actually this year, again has been really different and it's been really interesting because we've we didn't have the powered boat use this year all our trip boats had to stop operating because of covid we weren't able to have people coming through on their boats and staying overnight the visiting boats that would normally come on and off the canal through the summer um, what's happened is basically that 
the bed of the canal has been churned up less uh, without these engines going up and down the canal. That sort of had some positive and negative effects for the canal really. So the positive is that actually uh, we've had a lot less uh, turbidity in the canal. The turbidity basically is sort of how muddy the water is. So if right. you look down and it's looking a bit muddy and you can't see very far down then it's quite turbid. And if you can see right to the bottom it's not very turbid at all. And we can measure that with a fancy disc we have called a Secchi disc and we can drop that in and you measure at what point that disc disappears appears. Now actually I don't even need a Secchi disc right now because I'm standing looking into the canal right now and yeah we can pretty much see the bottom of the canal can't we? Yeah, it's always a bit of a treasure hunt because you see all sorts of things that have disappeared into the canal over time that suddenly <laughs> reappear. Um, anyway yeah so what's happened is it's just become much clearer and what was interesting was we were due for our vegetation survey this summer uh, we do them every year on every four years sorry on the canal so what we did is because we'd had this sort of anomaly year almost we said well we what we really need right now is a full canal turbidity survey to sort of give us an idea of what's the canal like without powered boats on it to give us kind of this baseline year we would probably never get this ever again yeah so um, working with a team of intrepid volunteers we volunteered to go out in their canoes we actually did measurements of turbidity with our Secchi discs every 250 meters down the full length of the canal over Got a couple me. of weeks and we timed that in at the same time um, that um, we were having our vegetation survey carried out as well so all those results are going to be comparable so that's going to be really interesting I haven't got the results that yet they're due out um, very soon we'll be able to look at that and what we plan to do then is sort of compare those results of previous surveys on boat use and things like that and start to learn a bit more about what affects the canal's turbidity and that turbidity then can affect obviously the growth of plants because even water-based plants uh, need the sunlight to photosynthesize yeah. so it's really important so all these things are all inter interlinked you know as well as like how much shading the canal gets from the trees as are we going to get the vegetation growing up along the banks and there's a lot of intricate stuff here and we don't fully know exactly how all of these things interact so there's some studies going to be going on as a result of this. There has been the downside of not having the powered boats as well because the boats will normally go down the centre of the canal and they create kind of a weed box area we call it basically where any weeds that would normally be growing in that area the propellers will chop those up and you get basically a clear channel down the centre of the canal whereas then you get the reed growth and the nice vegetation growing up on the side which is fantastic for the wildlife in those shallower areas and you get this beautiful combination like if you were going to create a garden pond you would want nice shallow areas around the edge with a little deeper area in the middle that's kept free from all that weed growth otherwise it gets clogged up and things can't grow and it goes really stagnant. The canal's kind of in the same in a way and it's really good to have those powered boats coming through because they keep that nice open water area which is really important obviously we've got the fish in the canal as well they need that open water and they need that sunlight and oxygen just as the plants do. So what we found is without the powered boats is that the, the underwater vegetation has grown quite rampant in areas and unfortunately the things that grow the fastest and the quickest tend to be the invasive species, the yeah. non-native invasives that we don't want on the canal and we spend an awful lot of time managing those and I've seen as a paddler on the canal I'm kind of looking down in some of our big wide bits of the canal we call flashes and looking at those and I can see some of the invasive species have grown right out across the canal now so we're going to have some trouble with them for the next couple of years with those getting wrapped around people's propellers and trying to knock those back again to sort of regain our control over that kind of nice clear water channel through those areas. Because those invasive species, I mean, they're quite a problem with a lot of fresh waters in particular, aren't they? Because, yeah. you know, they're, they're called invasive non-natives because they've been brought over from abroad. And where they are naturally living, there's things that eat them and there's things that keep them mm. under control. They don't have the same thing here. Do no, absolutely not. I mean, one of the worst ones that we spend probably the most amount of time and effort on controlling at the moment is floating pennywort. 
Um, and unfortunately, we have that on the lower half of the canal uh, in the Surrey area below Lock 7. So in the sort of Woking section and the Woodham section of the canal, uh, it can grow, I believe, is up to about 20 centimetres a day from tiny fragments. And it absolutely can cover the canal in an, a whole blanket. And it can be very, very thick as well, uh, to the point where you almost kind of, you need mechanical aid, basically, to pull that out. Um, we have a, a weed cutter, restored weed cutter on the canal, which we use. Uh, and we weren't able to get it out early in the season because of COVID again. Um, so we weren't able to get on it at the early part um, in the sort of late winter, early spring when we normally would. Um, and unfortunately, it then grew like crazy. And then as soon as when it came to a time where we were able to get volunteers back out again, it had got to become this absolutely massive mountain, literally, of a job to try and clear it. And of course, that will actually stop boats coming up, even if they were then allowed at that point, because we don't have clear water for them to travel through. So it was really important to get down there and to try and clear it and knock it back. But we spend, you know, months and months clearing um, the floating pennywort out of the canal and it's an ongoing long-term job. We, the main thing we're trying to do at the moment is contain it so that it doesn't come break out anywhere else on the canal. So the best we can do at the moment is contain and control uh, and keep on top of it as much as we possibly can. We've found in the past that really cold winters really help knock it back yeah. and really give us a good advantage. But we found really you need quite thick ice on the canal for at least two weeks in the winter for it really to have that big effect. And when, that, when we get those kind of winters, it's fantastic because it makes our life a lot easier. We can get in and clear it much quicker um, in the late winter and then be on top of it. And just then the job is just ticking it over, keeping on top of it. Whereas once we get those warm winters and things start to grow and keep growing, you know, in theory, it probably should stop growing around August, September, but it doesn't. It just keeps going with these mild winters. And then we just have such a job. It's really, really hard to keep on top of it. So, yeah, so much uh, volunteer, um, you know, manpower goes into keeping on top of that. Um, it's really, really hard job. And obviously we've got other invasive species on the canal as well and trying to maintain those as well. And so there's, there's uh, a lot of our time is spent dealing with these things that shouldn't really even be here. Quite often there might be somebody's got a garden pond or something and they're just filling it in. They think I need to do something with the plants. I'll just... I'll just put it in the canal, that's fine, isn't it? Oh that's my goodness, we'll... no. Oh, you know, and we had actually a, a bit of an outbreak of floating pennywort up in Fleet because just that we found um, there was a suspicious pot, uh, they say, uh, found floating in the canal. And at the same point, we then had an outbreak of hydrocotyl, sorry, a floating pennywort. Yeah. That's, sorry, that's part of its Latin name. Yeah, uh, you know, it grows so quickly that you know it came from that same area. And we had to jump on that, all volunteers into that area checking on it, removing tiny bits. We go in with litter pickets, pulling out tiny little fragments. We go in with nets. We armed all of our volunteer lengths. We do walk sections of the canal for us every week with nets so they could scoop any bits out. And we're really, even now, and that was um, three or four years ago now, even now we're still keeping a really close eye on that area and making sure if there's anything cropping up in that area, we're pulling it straight out because that could, that could almost, you know, destroy really all our wildlife through that whole upper section, 16 miles of canal, if that get, catches hold through there. So it's vitally important to be really on it uh, if we get any outbreaks. And we really do think that was some, somebody just chucking their plant pot out of the garden pond, just think, throwing it in the canal. Oh my goodness, it's, it's an absolute nightmare. Just little nightmare. things like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it can really, could mm. really affect everything. They just don't realise. And clearly volunteers are, you know, they're at the heart of everything you do, it sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like all countryside sites these days, we rely very, very heavily on volunteers. 
Um, we have the Basingstoke Canal Society, obviously, who originally did the rest restoration of the canal, who we still work alongside uh, very closely with their volunteers and their volunteer teams. And we have other teams as well who work directly for us. And between us all um, on the canal with volunteers, we're able to run trip boats uh, and raise additional revenue income from the canal. All of that comes straight back in towards helping us um, as well as all of the, the trip boats, we have work boats that are driven by volunteers. So again, if I need to move a work boat because the trees come down and we need to go and deal with it, you know, a day's journey, uh, you know, a day for staff time, instead I can ask volunteers to go and move that boat for us, allow my staff to carry on with other work. Uh, and the volunteers love it, you know, they get to drive all sorts of different types of boats. Everybody is fully trained up, we've got fully trained crew, all of the things that go with that. So they're getting loads out of it and we are benefiting massively. Obviously all of the time removing invasive species that we've yeah. already been talking about as well. Uh, but yeah, we would be totally lost uh, without volunteers on the canal. Uh, but I do like, you know, we've got hundreds of them, but we always need more. You know, really, we, we couldn't manage the canal without them absolutely vital we talked about the water plants and the dragonflies but there's also because you've got the um, grey world tunnel which is very important isn't it for wildlife yeah the grey world tunnel um, is a triple si in its own right i believe off the top of my head i think it's either the third or the fourth biggest bat hibernaculum within europe and that shows how important it is uh, the Grey Wall Tunnel is at the sort of the top end of the canal. Unfortunately, you can't go through the Grey Wall Tunnel anymore. Um, it did have a collapse there many years ago, so it's completely blocked off. And that's basically sort of what cut off the top bit of the canal that's not, not navigable now um, up in up Nately. Um, but yeah, it became basically a huge bat hibernaculum. So um, yeah, fantastic uh, for bat species and the local bat group do uh, regular surveys up there and have been monitoring the bats there for many years. And that's all down to the collapse, isn't it? Because, I mean, when it was a tunnel, there was air passing through all the time. Yeah. And it wasn't really suitable for a big bat roost. But yeah, it's, now yeah. it's a, a bat cave, basically, Yeah, isn't basically, it? a massive bat cave. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I mean, people still talk about whether we could one day reopen the Greywall Tunnel and reopen the top end of the canal. But um, unfortunately, I think the bats would have something to say about that and probably Natural England would as well. Yeah. It's, as we've been talking, it's quite a long sight. It goes through all sorts of countryside. Where, where's your favourite place on the canal? Oh, that's really difficult. It's like asking who your favourite child is or something like that, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I love all of the canal. I think it's fantastic. But I guess on my, I have to admit, I'm quite sad. On my days off, I still go to the canal because I'm a, a really keen paddler. Uh, and I've certainly paddled it several times over this summer, but probably the spot I always think is my favourite that I'll go for a paddle is probably between Crookham, uh, Crookham Wharf car park, probably up towards uh, Barley Mow and Winchfield. I think that's a really beautiful rural stretch of the canal. I, you're always going to see kingfishers through there, uh, which is fab. And uh, again, it's got some, as well as being tree covered, it's got some really nice open sections as well. So again, I like to watch all the, the dragonflies and damselflies through there. So I think that's probably my favourite spot. It's got a little bit of everything up there, I would say. Yeah, probably should say, I mean, as a former kayaker myself, when we say paddling, we're not rolling our trouser legs up, are we? <laughs> of course yeah. not, no. Unfortunately, uh, swimming in the canal is against the bylaws. Oh, right. So, yeah, unfortunately, you're not allowed to swim in the canal. Uh, but obviously, if you happen to fall in and have to swim to the edge uh, to get back out, obviously, that's, that's not illegal, acceptable. no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. And obviously, we have a. With as well as people just coming and paddling recreationally, we have the the three with three canoe clubs associated with the canal. Two of them are based here. We've got the Basingstoke and Dean um, Canoe Club up at Odium at Colthill and Odium, and we've got the Basingstoke Canal Canoe Club based here at Mitchett. And then also we have the Blackwater Valley Canoe Club. They don't have a base here, but they regularly use the canal as well. And all of those clubs work together quite a lot, and obviously run training courses and have lots of boats and equipment. So if you wanted to get into paddling, uh, that's a really great way to start off. 
Fantastic. Well, it's been great to come out and see you up here on such a beautiful section of the canal as well. So good to see you. No problem. Happy to have you. It's good to see some real people. So Andy, you talked with Fiona about her favourite place on the canal, but do you have one? Well, actually, I did used to live in the area, and um, I do love a place near Odium. It's um, up towards what's called King John's Castle. There's this this ruin. It's a it's a hunting lodge rather than a massive castle, but uh, it's a ruin now. And it's called King John's Castle because he's supposed to stop there on his way to Runnymede to sign the Magna Carta. And there's a lovely stretch that goes from the castle up towards uh, the Greywall Tunnel, and it's absolutely beautiful. So that's my favourite spot. Cool. So I just mentioned the Greywall Tunnel because we know that because uh, we've got the towpath over there, which was the where the horses used to walk with a big rope behind them towing the boats along. But when you get to the tunnel, there's no towpath. Do you know how they got the boats through? No. Well, he did a thing called legging it. And basically, they lie a board on the back of the boat, and there's a man on both, both ends of the board with their feet facing outwards, and they walk it through the tunnel. So they... <laughs> how long? It's about half a mile long, I think, the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And I think they go... About, uh, <laughs> it takes about half an hour for them to walk it through. So legging it isn't about running away from something? I think probably it's a different phrase, but it just sounds the same, but that was called legging it. Oh. So freshwater habitats are amazing, but did you know that freshwater only accounts for 3% of the world's water? Yeah, 3%, it's amazing. I mean, clearly most of the rest of it is salt water in the oceans. Yeah, the rest is salt water... But despite that only 3%, freshwater habitats are home to more than 100,000 species of plants and animals. I think that's amazing. It is, and it's an amazing wildlife resource. And actually, I mean, you might not be able to get the base of that your garden, but one of the best things you can do in your garden is put a little pond in, and it's amazing what you'll get turning up, some of the dragonflies and things like we've talked about recently. Yeah, I'm going to add one to my garden because I keep seeing a few dragonflies, and I live miles away from any water, so I will be seeing what comes this summer. Yeah, it's a great thing to do. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Looking After Nature, the Hampshire Countryside Service podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for more nature, conservation and wellbeing content. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Let us know by tweeting us or messaging us on Facebook and Instagram. And we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as it helps other people find us. In the meantime... Check out our social media pages for more relevant updates and loads of fun information about the Basingstoke Canal this month. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time. (laughs) 